Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh, Assistant Head of Brookwood, here with my colleague in Upper School English, Elizabeth Eames. Hi, Liz. Hi, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me today. Today, we're going to talk about the end of the English major, which is an article that appeared in the March 6th issue of The New Yorker. This article has been getting a lot of attention in the press, and its tone is primarily observational and exploratory. It's not quite like one of those anthropological articles, like, we've met some people who seem to be religious. Let us explore. It's not quite like that. It's more observational and exploratory, though, uh, looking at the phenomenon of, of decline in English majors and its potential causes. Um, the fundamental phenomenon is that since 2012, there's been something like a 50% drop in students graduating with an English major um, across the board in most different kinds of colleges, with one exception, it's the Claremont Colleges in California. Um, I wonder when you read the article, what struck you as um, right and what struck you as problematic? Okay, that's it's a big question on a big article. Um, what struck me as right is that there are multiple forces at play that are driving down the number of students choosing the English major, and as they say, the humanities in general. Mm -hmm. um, some of those factors are follow the money kinds of conversations, yeah. and I think that's always important to keep in mind when you look at higher education. Sure. Who's getting funded, how and why are they getting funded, yeah. and when that funding isn't happening, how does it trickle down to individual student experience? Yeah, absolutely. Other things that I think are interesting to look at from our perspective, um, the idea of sort of readiness and interest in English, mm -hmm. um, and they, they hinted at this without expressly saying it, although they did call it out a few times. Um, the focus since around 2008 on STEM yeah. has really given students this message that it is their job to seek these fields uh, mm -hmm. to contribute to society, to make change, to be a part of innovation. Yeah. And we can talk about how that is and is not accurate, but right. that's certainly the message they've received and they've taken it with them mm -hmm. to college. Um, yeah, yeah. I noticed that too in the article that um, there was a lot of talk about how people love to read and, um, and how English is a nice hobby, but their focus needs to be in STEM because that's either the respected field um, or um, more along the lines of what you're saying, that it's more in line with um, the values that the culture has, right? The, um, the value um, on innovation and um, in, in general sort of scientific endeavor. And then of course, there's the, um, the role of, of, of careerism, right? Getting a, yes. getting a job and, um, and how that goes, but that may not be what you're ready to talk about yet. I think that's absolutely part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and again, the money conversation, justifying the investment on mm -hmm. the part of the student, especially, and they hit this many times on the first time college student in yeah. the family. Yeah. Uh, what it, taking on this burden, what must I walk away with? Right. How quickly can I pay it off? Right. And the article brought up an interesting point that English majors on average do come out carrying less debt, mm -hmm. but on average it takes them longer to pay it down. Right. So the cost benefit, I think, and the monetization of a degree in general has yeah. had a tremendous impact on this field. Yeah. So I'm a first generation college student and or college graduate. And um I and for me, I never really thought about it. And it maybe maybe that's gendered. I mean, maybe I didn't have the same kind of pressure. Maybe I don't have the same kind of family. Because um, I think a lot of people feel pressure um, to produce financially having um, 
having the, you know, being the, the first person to get the degree. For me, it was more like, here's this opportunity that I've worked for and that I'm in particular, for whatever reason, more lined up to get than, um, than other people in my family have been. And I appreciate what they've done to make it possible, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel a kind of pressure to produce financially in mm-hmm. the same way. So I, as I read through those different biographies, I mean, a lot of them are, um, the stereotypical, I guess, um, immigrant kind of, um, family where you have, where, where there is the, the idea that we've worked very hard to get here and now you need to be a doctor. Um, that, I mean, that sort of idea does seem to be something that, um, that was said over and over by the various Mm -hmm. people interviewed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, that that's definitely, um, part of it. And I guess it's also true that I didn't have a bunch of debt. I went to a, um, a college where I could get a full scholarship. And so I didn't like, there wasn't that piece of it. I mean, although there was this idea that I was doing something different from what's normally done. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Um, I think that's important to point out. And I think the idea of generalizing every first generation student's experience really Mm -hmm. diminishes what that experience is and what the purpose of the university is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true that, I mean, I went to public school and, um, and came through with the idea that I wanted to participate in what in my mind was sort of like culture Mm -hmm. just meaning, um, sort of the arts and, um, and literature and, um, the, um, I don't know, sort of higher things in some way uh, that I wanted to be a reflective person. And I felt that to do that, I needed to expose myself to learning. And that was my goal going to college. Um, I don't know. I, I, that, I don't know if that's unusual. Um, I mean, you came, you come from a different family. Right. And, um, and, right. and you came out with an English major. I did. <laughs> it still happened. Um, <laughs> Yes. I mean, and I think, and I, I spent some time working in higher ed in an institution that prides itself on being one of these sort of first generation mm-hmm. um, opportunity builders for students. Mm-hmm. And in that capacity, I saw a lot of the positives, um, but also some of the negatives, particularly when it becomes associated with marketing mm-hmm. and with marketing outcomes and yeah. with donor and investment outcomes. Okay. You know, when it yeah. becomes this is your entry point to a different world of work. And the mm-hmm. article talks quite a bit about this as well, using different terminology. But uh, that changes what you're essentially selling to students, what you're promising mm-hmm. to students and what you're promising to their families and how yeah. you're kind of securing their investments. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the article talks about a multiversity, right? And the idea of sort of those twin goals of, as you're describing it, this, this life of the mind, this cultivation of culture, and then the other side of it, what is the practical outcome? How do I have an advantage uh, against my peers when mm-hmm. I come out and I'm, I'm competing for jobs? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that the goal of the university is, I mean, is important in the way that you just describe. And the article talks a lot about um, again, this kind of job training kind mm-hmm. of aspect. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in, I, when I taught at the University of Maryland, for me, um, like the, I had all different kinds of students and many of them wanted to talk about um, 
there, I mean, when we did a, they, we did a research paper sequence and uh, it frequently came up that is college worth it topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's also mentioned in the article as, you know, something that people think about in a different way from maybe how they used to, but is it worth it? And is it worth it financially? Is it worth it on some level of character? Is it worth it in terms of, um, advancement? Like, I mean, sort of like how, how does that, how does that play out? And I mean, if we think about, you know, foundational goals of the university, it's quite different. Yes. I don't know. Do you want to talk at all about that or? Sure. Yeah. Um, and that sort of teased me right up for the, <laughs> one of the most interesting moments of the article as, as I experienced it. Um, they quote or they reference the idea of the traditional university and sort of the beauty of that, right? And they mm-hmm. and they mention, you know, we want to look at the, uh, you know, climb the mountain and look down like Ulysses, right? <laughs> and I mean, I loved it because that's my absolute favorite poem in the entire world. <laughs> so that's part of it. But but that really got me thinking. Um, that's not really a, a throwaway line or a throwaway idea, right? Right. And and I think that I mean, it's a, it's a great article, and I think Nathan Heller is. A phenomenal journalist, um, but I think maybe he was a little too close almost to the poem and to that sort of mm. life of literature and life of letters that he didn't take the next step to sort of say, wait, that also solves the problem that you're setting up. Hmm. Um, it's not just the leisure of learning, and, and we all respect the fact that even our working college students and, and all of this, education has a certain aspect of leisure to it, right? Sure. The time we take. Um, and and what a gift, right, to be able to to read, right? Um, and but the poem, right, talks about striving for knowledge mm. and seeking and not yielding. Mm-hmm. And to me, what that is is a framework for this kind of work ethic mm-hmm. that is convincing some people that the humanities aren't really worth their while because they mm. can't find the ROI fast enough. Mm. Um, but the rigor of the humanities actually puts them in a position to succeed no matter where they go, to succeed mm, right. outside of the right. academy, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and later on, he does kind of pull that in as well, and he talks about how English majors and humanities graduates tend to become leaders in their organizations, right. and it's because of the analytical skills and Absolutely. writing and communication skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's an old conversation, yeah. right? Where people say, what are you going to do with your English major? Mm-hmm. You're going to be living in your parents' basement or whatever. Right. And the answer is, no, no, I'm on my way to law school. Mm-hmm. Or, no, no, I'm, uh, you know, there are lots of... the CEO. Right, right, right. There are lots of different ways that those skills find application in the workplace. Um, but yeah, the idea too, that the, um, that it's not just skills too. Um, and that, that, that the content, mm-hmm. um, gives us insight into human nature, gives us insight into, um, the way that people interact with each other, give us insight into, um, people's motivations, like all of those kinds of things, overlapping ideas. Um, there was the, the one person in the article, um, who was talking about, uh, about that, about the, um, the the under the greater understanding of character that you get from you know from reading and um, and that the idea was for her her I think uh, that it was that the that she ended up in English because she was interested in the professor's idea of the text 
uh, rather than this or that concrete skill that she mm-hmm. needs in order mm-hmm. to be more marketable. And so, I mean, sort of a content versus skills thing. Now, I would say that we learn all kinds of skills in English, right. um, but I think that that focus is interesting too. This idea that, um, you know, the idea of the canon, right? And mm-hmm. um, and that there's um, that there is either a set of texts that, you know, that people generally know, um, or that there's a kind of text, a text that has a certain level of complexity or does a certain kind of thing that um, enables people to have a kind of common language when they talk mm-hmm. about um, when they talk about literature, when they talk about you know any number of different kinds of ideas. I mean, it's not an admin meeting until there's a reference to Brideshead Revisited. You know, I mean, it's, I mean so there's I mean it, there are different ways that you know what we read, you know, brings to bear. Um, on whatever it is that we're talking about. There are lots of overlaps between our experienced lives um, in terms of like things that we do and our experienced lives as readers. Yes. Right? Reading is experienced too, yes. as I tell my 10th graders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, um, there, it seems like there's a, a lot to be thought of there. Um, I mean, as the canon was giving way in you know, the last half of the 20th mm-hmm. century, it seems like what happened first was sort of like, okay, well, we should have these voices too, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was like, here are the most important sort of canonical texts, and then here are some additional voices. And now it seems that the shift is to this kind of, and the article talks about mm-hmm. this, this kind of um, emphasis on the contemporary this preference for the present mm-hmm. um, that we see with, um, you know, the way that, um, again, that I think everybody who quotes this article quotes the bit about the scarlet letter. Yes. About how, <laughs> you know, the, the students find it inaccessible, the sentences are too long, um, the, you know, all of this sort of complaint about the scarlet letter. The, um, and we can talk about, like, why that might be, but I think that, I mean, the point there is that it... Um, is that you know the the complexity of the text um, offers something, and the um, the this kind of prejudice then uh, prejudice ooh, this kind of preference then toward the present um, seems to be about uh, we, we see it reflected in like the the AP exams now we see it reflected in um, like this desire to make sure that there's representation. So if we get rid of you know, some of the old things, then we have room for lots of new things that um, allow for you know, lots of different kinds of voices. Yeah. Um, does it make sense to think a little bit about the shift from what are great works of literature we should know to understand our civilization to what voices do we want to hear? I mean, that seems to be a shift that's happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you think about that vis-a-vis this conversation? Right. Well, I think it's an excellent thing to think about. Yeah. It's part of why the numbers are declining. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and again, it comes to like, how are the departments presenting themselves? Right. And if they're presenting themselves in terms of apologizing for the existence of the canon without context mm-hmm. and jumping to new voices without context, mm-hmm. then I think there's a certain lack of structure right. that makes it feel more like a hobby 
which right. is how it's sort of being interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of fragmentation in what's taught rather yes. than being able to see connections between and among different pieces or different movements. Exactly. And I think, yeah. and, and within that, right, at the same time we were shifting away from the canon proper, we were shifting away from sort of, for lack of a better word, best practices to approaching the text, right? Mm-hmm. We were having fragmented schools of thought in terms of critical analysis and yeah. critical theory. Mm-hmm. And again, that kind of hyper-specialization within a discipline to undergraduates. Mm-hmm. I, it's not enough of a unified whole for them to understand and participate in astutely. Yeah. Um, so again, it, it doesn't feel right because maybe it isn't right, mm-hmm. right? Maybe the major... Maybe the majors didn't leave the English major, but the English major mm-hmm. abandoned the people who wanted to be the majors. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's true. Like that. Um, that. I mean, so in the era of new criticism, so mm-hmm. like the nineteen fifties and you know before and after, um, you have this one way of of looking at the text that dominated, and that caused people who make anthologies and um, people who produce different kinds of materials for students to prefer a certain kind of thing. Yes. So John Donne, very good. Um, you know, uh, um, other um, maybe more um, loose or um, like loosely romantic texts, you know, were underrepresented maybe at that time mm-hmm. as, um, as the, those new critics preferred certain kinds of things. So the, the literary criticism affects what's taught and thus what's in the canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you have with the rise of post-structuralist theory in the late 60s, you have that fragmentation of the way that people look at things. And the result is then that you have different groups promoting different texts. Right. And so you have not just like, here's this desire to include different voices, which has a place for sure. And it must um, happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but then there's also this kind of agenda for particular schools of literary criticism and then the texts that come with those. So that seems to be part of what's happening. I think that was underplayed in the article. It was mentioned, but I think it was underplayed I, in the I agree. Article. I agree. And again, I think specialization happens at the graduate level. Mm-hmm. You know, before we can deconstruct, let's build. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, come on, man. It's a theory, not right, a method. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And I think, you know, one of the sort of pull quotes that I got from the article was that, you know, Salman Rushdie read the canon. And and even when the professor who presented this statement, she said, you know, you can even consider that one of the tragedies of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. But it is reality, right? And the more we ground ourselves in reality, I think the more we justify ourselves as a discipline also. We come down away from the hobby, away from Mm -hmm. the theory you know, and into the lived experience, the represented experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can develop richer voices yeah. if we have this commonality, mm-hmm. this equalizer, mm-hmm. right, of shared literature. And that shared literature can come from and should come from multiple perspectives, both the mm-hmm. old and the new. Yeah, yeah. I think about, um, you know, if you want to if you want to read Toni Morrison, well, you need to read Dante and then you need to read Faulkner. She did. And then, yeah, because yeah. she did and because you can see it everywhere. Yes. And it's and so you have that um, that that foundation that that seems to be necessary to, you know, to people's education mm-hmm. and, um, and that enables you to read anything else in the future. I mean, I, when I think back on my liberal arts education, 
I think about what I was taught and um, the the pieces that come up the most are probably the most quote canonical pieces mm. uh, because they provide the foundation um, for me to read anything right I mean so once I can read um, I don't know Homer once I can read um, the I mean Dante once I can read um, Beowulf um, once I can read those things then I'm ready to read whatever and I have the skills to do it on my own and it's it's helpful to have it in a class but I have the skills to read it on my own as well Mm -hmm. so yeah right and and again like right that whole like skills and experience thing you also have the opportunity to experience the richness of the symbols and the illusions and Mm -hmm. all these other things I think we we make literature more flat yeah. when we try and read it in a vacuum, whether mm-hmm. that's the vacuum of other literature or mm-hmm. the history around it or, you know, sociology that impacts it, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, give it the richness that it deserves by mm-hmm. a- allowing yourself to experience its layers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so looking at the, the various causes that the article points to, the article also points to technology and the smartphone mm-hmm. as, part of, as, as part of the reason for what's happening. And so there's a, a college professor who's interviewed uh, who says that you know, he didn't get a smartphone until just recently and um, he used to read five novels a month or something. And, um, and now he reads very little because he's also listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hmm, podcasts. <laughs> and he's also um, you know, ex- experiencing and, um, and getting um, both information and works of art uh, in other ways. Mm-hmm. And so you have that, that also as part of the, the phenomenon. And of course, it has to do with um, our ability to pay attention to things um, as well. I don't know if you wanted to speak to technology. Yes. Um, I think that, I think he brings up a good point. Um, and I think that we need to not turn it into a conversation about appreciating literature in its fullness or adopting new technologies that enter our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in order to bring them together, we need to sort of understand what are the opportunities that this technology provides and what are the limitations that this technology presents. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I would have liked the article to have gone into Mm -hmm. a little more um, or maybe see some sort of follow-up discussion. Maybe there's another community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Because it is wonderful to have access to art and culture and the written word mm-hmm. through a device. At the same time, we can't say that because I have access to the world, essentially, right. that I am automatically of the world, automatically prepared to digest it well, to mm-hmm. understand it fully, right. uh, or absolved of the responsibility to do the work. Right, right. And there's a certain amount of, if everything is available, what are you gonna pay attention to? And so trying yes. to figure out how to curate that but then also how, like how to stay with it long enough, right? Mm-hmm. And so figuring out sort of like how, how that's going to work. Um, I mean, certainly being able to, um, you know, think of a book, get a book on your device right away, or somebody suggests a book, you get a book on your device right away. Like all of that is fantastic. Um, I don't know if people, though, uh, are, are, are doing that. Right. right. And so there's a question. Or if enough of, people are doing that to offset the people who are doing 
right. things that right. are reducing attention spans and yeah. you know not using the technology responsibly. Right. I think the responsible use of technology, especially for students, is an important mm-hmm. conversation to have. Yeah, I think that with reading, um, there's kind of a natural progression that happens as kids grow up. They read a simple book, they read a more complex book, they read a more complex book. Um, and then they're in high school and they get a phone. And what happens after that is is a little tricky, right? I think that there's, when I think about like the development of our students, in, um, in the current ninth grade, there is this desire, they, they, a lot of them are real readers and they, mm-hmm. they love to read and they're passing books around. And, um, but they're also kind of hitting a wall. They don't have the emotional maturity for a lot of more complex texts uh, like emotionally complex texts, yes. uh, but they um, but they can read really well, you know, and so they're um, they're at a, in a place where there's not a lot available, and I think they're also at this moment where you know they have a phone because they're more independent. They you know their parents need them to be able to get in touch with them, whatever. Um, so they have a phone, and they and they begin to um, that desire to read begins to turn into something else as they're influenced by other things. I know that's happened in my house uh, with, especially with my younger son who was, you know, was, and he still is like a really avid reader, but with, um, with the phone, he is, um, he is more, um, prone to like, he'll, he'll spend some downtime, you know, watching something, um, instead of, um, instead of picking up whatever would be a book that's a little bit challenging for him, mm-hmm. right? He's not mm-hmm. quite sure how to do that. I'm trying to help him, but he's not quite sure how to do that. I don't know. As we think about like what we do as high school teachers, I think that that's something important to think about. Like, are we providing what that what that next step would be? Um, in the ninth grade, they're passing around the book thief. Oh, nice. uh, which I think is, you know, a totally good choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's not a lot like that. I mean, it's like That's a, true. it's like an advanced literary. Not, I mean, it's a little beyond a middle grades book, but it's, I mean, it's kind of an advanced literary kids book. So I mean, in mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about like how to hit that place for them where they're more. I mean, they they have more intellect developed than kind of emotional maturity at that point so figuring out like what that would be i mean i guess there are lots of intellectual texts that are available like um or intellectually appealing texts like the dystopian novel and mm-hmm. things that are more mm-hmm. um are more thinking than um than feeling in a complex way i don't know this is a digression i will think about it it's a good one though <laughs> <laughs> and and i think you're bringing up an excellent point which is part of the technology conversation that there's so much competing for their attention Mm -hmm. and that's at the same time when their list of books is probably the smallest it will ever be yeah in terms of as you're saying what they're able to take in Mm -hmm. and what they want to take in right right Right. and I mean I wouldn't want to push a kid to some place that's more emotionally mature than you know than is appropriate, mm-hmm. um, in order to sort of keep them going as as readers. I don't know. So Stephen Greenblatt in the article um, talks about long form TV as um, you know as literature, and I mean I I am sympathetic to that, but I um, but I also um, I think it's just something else, right? It's um, it's like it's a different form. I agree. 
I agree. I mean, it, it goes in the media bucket mm-hmm. and the story bucket, yeah. and, and that's a very good place. Um, and it's certainly worth spending time with. Mm-hmm. I do not think it's the same thing. And mm-hmm. then there's even the sort of tension within the humanities, right? Because I would ju- I would classify that as communications, mm-hmm. which is a little less on the pure. Yeah. humanities side. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. I, I just think about film. I think of, of the long form TV as like a, a, a kind of film. And for me, like there's a crossover between film and literature. I mean, but it's the same crossover as like when I when I read, that's in air quotes, an audiobook. Yes. Right? I mean somebody else is interpreting the the way that the sentences go. And there's and that's fine, but it's not the same as reading it on the page. So, I don't know. You play a different role, right, as the consumer of the media. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so thinking about the the things that aren't on the page literature and um, and sort of like how we we work with and digest those things um, and and how we think about um, their value as art. Another aspect that strikes me as important here is like as there's less interest in pursuing English, qua English, uh, as a major, you see the um, the kind of blending of departments. I know that there there are now some high schools that have blended um, English and history um, as departments, and I I think that's unfortunate. Um, when I taught years ago in Ohio. Um, we did an American studies class mm-hmm. that um, I taught the English part. My colleague taught the history part. It was great. Um, and he, he had, we had very different personalities, and it was completely fun. Um, at the same time, we would sometimes meet separately, mm-hmm. um, and we would sometimes meet together. And that, I thought, worked uh, because it enabled um, me to say, okay, so Dr. Smith is using this text um, as an historical document. Now let's talk about syntax, you know, and, um, and like in how, and how it's working on its own as, as a work of art. And so it was, so this sort of, um, like sometimes we talk about it together. Sometimes we talk about it separately aspect worked, but, um, but for Dr. Smith, there was always the desire to look at the text as, you know, as speaking to its time. Mm-hmm. Which is totally fine, but it's not the only way of looking. Right. And so thinking about that. I don't know, do you have thoughts about um, department shifting? And- yes. Well, I have passionate thoughts about <laughs> interdisciplinary approaches uh-huh. to knowledge and to communication. Uh, I think it is absolutely essential, and I think it is the purpose of this whole academic endeavor that we take on. At the same time, just as we can't deconstruct until we build, we mm-hmm. can't cross disciplines until we have some level of mastery mm-hmm. in core disciplines themselves. Yeah, uh, and I, I think that that sounds like a great class. I would have loved to have taken it. And, it was really and fun. Been part of it. Yeah. Um, I, I do agree that we need to look at expertise and its role. Mm-hmm. It may be more limited than tenured professors want to admit. Mm, that's um, true. But it is not without value. And, yeah. and interdisciplinary approaches or you know, collaborative departments are successful when they're bringing the best of both perspectives together yeah. and applying this 
other is sort of layer right of what is the interdisciplinary approach to each of these disciplines yeah the challenge yeah. is when it's a blend that sort of loses on each side when mm-hmm. it's a half in mm-hmm. and we never get a whole of anything yeah i think about the way i use art in my english mm-hmm. class you know I mean, if we're talking about romanticism i'll flash up some pictures or if we're talking about modernism i'll flash up some cubism and we'll talk about sort of like you know what what does this teach us about that mm-hmm. and and if if, if someone taught literature, you know, to use literature to get to something else, I'd be irritated, right? <laughs> and so thinking about that, like the way that I, I use art is like is totally, I mean, it's it's maybe interesting and somewhat helpful, but everybody's aware they're in an English class and it's just there to, you know, to give us a better lens to the literature. Um, but I think that that's something too. So I went to Poetry Out Loud mm-hmm. this um, this last week, the, the state competition, which our student did very well. And um, one of the things that was said um, by the person who is um, direct, was the director of the um, of the the group that sponsors the Poetry Out Loud, um, she was talking about how poetry is a tool for social justice and a platform for expression. And yeah, <laughs> and and I thought, okay, sometimes yes. Yes, but also it's a thing in itself. Poetry is poetry. And, um, and I think that that's what has begun to happen, mm-hmm. that literature can be used to do something further. Um, yeah. And that almost circles back to the whole, what is the purpose of the English major? Right. Or, you know, as a commodity. Right. right? It's, it's commoditizing art. Mm-hmm. in some way um yes art mobilizes absolutely art oh yeah connects uh art unifies art can speak truth to power all these mm-hmm. wonderful things uh but it has to be defined as what it is rather than how it can be used in certain settings yeah uh, and i think we again diminish the value of say an english major if we are only looking to define it by how it can be used, what mm-hmm. you know, what purpose that society at the moment approves of or values or rewards mm-hmm. versus what is it truly and right. why are we doing this? Yeah, or, or what is it on its own? What is it exactly. sort of, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can remember sitting in class and having a professor say, you know, Percy Shelley says that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world and, um, and being fine with that. And be like, okay, here's here's an approach, here's a thing, here's um, here's an idea. But I but I never thought that was the only thing that poets did, right? And so I think that's I think for me that's the difference. It's like yes. um, I mean, sure, I I value um, you know Clifford Odets um, or Amiri Baraka uh, or you know somebody whose um, whose work really has a kind of outward focus, mm-hmm. um, but I know that it's not all outward, right? That there's yes. some that's, that's, I mean, the, the art does all different kinds of things um, and has a kind of integrity of its own. Right. I yes. think that's essential, that it has an integrity of its own. Yes. yes. So what haven't we talked about that you want to talk about? I think the opening and closing of the article really mm. struck me, and it struck me because of how it called to mind the Brookwood mission. Hmm. Uh, there was a student 
at the beginning of the article, um, her name is Meg Masias, and she's a junior at um, ASU. Mm-hmm. And she says, it's hard for English majors to find joy in what they're doing. They always know there's someone who wishes that they were doing something else. Yeah. And I thought, wow. You know, this this is where joy lives, right? Art is where joy lives. It's right. art. Art is where we go when we are seeking joy. And this idea mm-hmm. that you have to defend against yeah. seeking that um, mm-hmm. was, was a little heartbreaking. But you mentioned the Claremont Colleges. And, uh, and that's sort of like the answer to that. Uh, one of the professors there, much later in the article, says, um, we need to bring back the awe and the students will follow, mm-hmm. and that they are seeking truth and beauty. And I thought, yeah. wow, you know, we've we've been embedding that drive mm-hmm. in our students. For sure. And it's, it's good to hear that in many ways that is the antidote to mm-hmm. this problem that they've set up. Right, um, right. Let, let it be what it is. Let the art be what it is. Let the communication be what it is. Let the experience be what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the all will come and people will will seek it. Yeah. And I mean, I think in, um, I mean, certainly in graduate school, I heard a lot about, um, how sort of universalizing aspects of art were sort of quaint. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and how, you know, those ideas are, are sort of, um, old fashioned and maybe sentimental. And I think maybe, that can happen. I think it's, I mean, like it's possible to, um, to either have a work of art that does that in a sort of cheap and sentimental way, uh, or to have an approach that's cheap and sentimental. But it seems that when you clear away all of that, you're in this place where if, if art is doing what, what it's, what it sets out to do, um, then it is inspiring, um, this, through beauty, a love of truth, um, or, you know, some other combination of those factors. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about, um, the relationship of the text to the reader's awe, yes. right? Yes. And the, um, and then ultimately, um, uh, the text as a kind of expression of, um, of beauty, again, often as a conduit to truth, um, or, in, in some other configuration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming and chatting. Um, it seems like we have a lot to say about this. Um, I think that, um, yeah, this may be the first of a couple conversations and we may find some other texts to talk about that, um, that handle the humanities and, um, the importance of, um, of art as, as itself. Right. And, um, and that it's worthwhile to pursue these things and can be lucrative. Yes. Uh, so um, <laughs> we can think about, about those kinds of ideas. This has been the Brooklyn and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. This episode, The End of the English Major, features Elizabeth Eames. I'm Sherry Walsh. Our producer is Quentin Walsh. Our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Opinions expressed are the participants' own. So.